You're listening to the Bird Dog Babe Podcast with my mom, Courtney Bastion. This podcast is sponsored by Purina Pro Plan, Boss Shot Shells, and Onyx Hunt. And this episode is brought to you by Breeders Edge. If we are going into AKC, we need to do it right. We need mm-hmm. to do it where when we have that increase in publicity with AKC, that we have all of our T's crossed, all of our I's dotted, that we have a strong judges education program, that we have mentors available who want to get people started in, you know, hunt testing and getting their dogs started on birds. And that we are able to support our hunting members as we move into this very like show centric organization, even though AKC is a lot more than just dog shows. um, It has that wrap of being the show dog organization. Um, And the last thing we wanted was there to be a divide. Um, We don't want to see this breed split into field and show dogs. Breeders Edge is the first and only brand dedicated solely to making sure you have what you need for successful breeding. As a breeder, the challenges you face are different than the average pet owner, from staying up all night whelping a litter to bottle feeding a struggling newborn around the clock. You work hard for the animals in your care. The Oral Cal Plus Gel is a must for every litter I whelp. This calcium supplement not only assists with milk production, but it alleviates many behavioral problems such as excessive digging, aggression toward puppies, restlessness, and rejection of puppies. I prefer the Oral Cal Plus Gel over other common calcium supplements because it contains vitamin C and other ingredients that enhance quick calcium absorption, and my bitches absolutely love it. For healthier bitches and healthier puppies, choose Breeder's Edge. Go to RevivalAnimal.com and use promo code BIRDDOG10 for 10% off your order of all the Breeder's Edge products. Patreon members, tonight at 8.30 Central Standard Time, we're having a Beyond the Podcast webinar with Angie Coonan and William Bastian providing handler tips for the NAVDA utility test. They'll be covering how to read and understand the scorecard, what's too much and too little handling, how the steadiness sequence is judged, the difference between cooperation and obedience, how and why the drag is different from the tracking test, and how to set up your dog for success. Go to patreon.com forward slash the bird dog babe to register for $5. If you're already one of the super awesome supportive members of Patreon, you're already registered and just need to click on the link. As with all webinars, $100 will be donated to a conservation organization of the presenter's choice on behalf of all of you amazing Patreon members' patronage. We had an amazing time at her Upland Pointing Dog Camp in Montana a couple weeks ago, and I'll be providing a full recap in my next podcast on an event, as well as many exciting future events coming up yet this year and our plans for next year. I have a couple meetings next week to finalize plans, then I'll be able to share them with you all. But I do want to mention the Youth Day that Her Upland and Big Sky NAVDA chapter are co-hosting together. It's being held at the Rodeo Grounds in Helmville, Montana on Saturday, July 30th, and we have activities planned for all ages, so from 6 months old to 18 years old. We'll be opening registration on that very soon, so keep an eye out. I can't thank the sponsors and partners enough for their support with not only this podcast, but our Her Upland events as well. 
Purina Pro Plan, a complete and balanced diet for our working dogs that provides such advanced nutrition that you can actually see the positive improvements in your dog. Go to Purina.com and check out everything they have to offer, or feel free to shoot me an email or DM if you would like some help finding a formula that's right for your dog. Boss Shot Shells. I ordered all of my ammo from Boss about a month ago. Have you ordered yours yet? Don't be that person that waits right before hunting season when it's sold out. Don't do that. Don't give yourself an excuse to shoot lead. Make the switch if you haven't already. Make it a non-toxier. Get the lead out, get it out of your meat and the land. How much lead is harmful? Any and all lead is harmful. That's it, that's the answer. Go to BossShotShells.com and get ammo that is not only lead-free, but also packs a punch. Onyx Hunt, the number one GPS hunting map for both public and private land. When I was putting together the itinerary for our youth event, my son Burke inspired me with how often he refers to Onyx to utilize in so many things that we do together. He'll ask me to put a pin in certain areas on our hunts that he enjoys. He reminded me to start the tracking option when we left the truck for a hike. And he asked me to see the boundary line of a fence where we were looking to cross. So we have a navigation portion in our youth day because this app is so easy to use and navigate that even a kid can do it. If you don't already have Onyx Hunt, go to onyxmaps.com and use promo code BDB20, that's BDB as in bird, dog, babe, 20 for 20% off. Siren shotguns. So this year I've invested in my shooting. I'm taking lessons in Spokane every month with Tracy Wright of Dark Horse Shooting, who is amazing. And I am so disappointed in myself for not doing this sooner. I've been hunting for about 14 years, and this is the first time that I've actually taken professional shooting lessons. It's so frustrating to think about how much better I could have been so much earlier. But I suppose as the saying goes, better late than never. We spend so much time training our dogs to perform well, why aren't we doing the same for ourselves? Get yourself a shotgun that fits you right out of the box, not one that fits the average man that you need to cut down to size. Siren has a full line of shotguns for women. Go to sirenusa.com to find a demo center near you to try one out or come to one of our Her Upland events and shoot some with us. Hunting season is about eight weeks away. If you don't have a durable kennel to travel safely with your dog to and from your hunting spots, now is the time to do it. A wire crate or those plastic very type crates will not protect your dog in a rollover. And for Pete's sake, stop letting your dog run around loose in your vehicle. Get a Dakota 283 Rotomold kennel that you can strap down and has a locking door to keep your dog safe. Go to Dakota283.com and use promo code BirdDogBabe for 10% off. My guest today is Dr. Amanda Inman, and we are talking about one of my favorite bird dog breeds, the 200th breed to gain AKC recognition, the Bracco Italiano. Amanda is a longtime Bracco enthusiast, president of the Bracco Italiano Club of America, and a veterinarian that has made the major health concerns of the breed her personal passion project, with research being recognized around the world. All right. Let's get after it. All right. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Amanda Inman. How are you doing today? Pretty good, Courtney. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me onto this. I'm very grateful that you're able to come on with your very, very busy schedule. 
And I actually think it's perfect timing with, with what's just happened recently in the breed and especially this first weekend out. So we have a good opportunity with this timing to really take advantage of that, hit some, hit some good spots. It has been a very busy week for the breed. (laughs) A bit overwhelming. Yes. Yes. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. (laughs) You're coming to us from Florida, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, Ocala, Florida. So kind of uh, north central part of the state. Okay. And have you lived there all your life? I have. I am born and raised in this area. Um, Went to school here, put down roots here. So I'm stuck at least for the time being. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about you growing up and because I mean, you are you your second generation with, with the Bracco Italiano, right? Um, in a way, um, I was the one that started with the breed and then looped oh. my parents into it. Um, okay. Initially hesitantly, but now they're, they're just as involved as I am. But, um, I grew up, um, on a farm horses, cows, chickens, you know, the, the works. Um, and then I've always been a dog person. My mom did barrel racing and was like a diehard, uh, horse girl and wanted me very much to be a horse person, but I have been a avowed dog person my entire life. Um, and grew up with like dachshunds and, uh, Vishla and, uh, several mixed breeds, but didn't really have a breed that the family was involved with until um, the Bracco, which I found in a dog book when I was 13 or 14 and thought, oh, wow, I love this. It's the most beautiful dog I've ever seen. I want one. And my parents, of course, um, said, well, sure, if you can find one, we'll get it for you. And they... (laughs) did not think that that would happen. Um, obviously that's a task though. I mean, it, probably, it wasn't easy to find when you were 13. I can't imagine. Oh, um, but I, I did get very lucky. And about three weeks later, I was on a waiting list with Casa Bravo kennels. Wow. <laughs> and th- at that point they had to, um, hold up their end of the bargain basically. Um, cause we had been looking for another dog. We had a Vishla at the time who was getting a little bit older and she was very sweet, but, um, a little clingy, a little high strung, not quite the relaxed companion that we wanted. Um, and from everyone that we talked to, it seemed like the Bracco fit the bill. Um, and one thing led to another. And then Hector joined our house in uh, the end of 2005. Um, wow. But I had met one Bracco in person prior to that. Um, I saw them walking down in Key Largo. We were on vacation and I um, actually was the, the kid on my bike and I chased her down on my bike. And I said, is that a Bracco Italiano? And of course she thought I was nuts. Um, but that her name's Gloria and we're still friends to this day. Oh, how neat. And does she still, does she still have the breed too? She does. She does. And um, we see them somewhat frequently. Um, I was just down in the Keys a couple of weeks ago and um, didn't see her, but walked by her house and said hi to her dogs. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> had you, before the Bracco with the other breeds that you had mentioned there, did you do stuff with them? Like the confirmation, junior showmanship, hunt tests or anything? No, um, I wanted to show um, and had 
attended just a couple of shows as a spectator with my Vishla, but she didn't quite have the temperament for it um, or the confirmation, if we're being honest. But <laughs> at the time, definitely not the temperament. She was very reserved. Um, and so it was a dream of mine to be able to have a quote show dog, but um, had not been able to realize that um, until I got the Bracco and was able to get involved in some dog events. You got Hector when you were 13. I'm four, 14 by the time he ended up coming to the, by the time we got him. Um, okay. And then started showing at, at 14. Um, okay. You know, when he was about six months old. Um, and then at about that same time, started doing some hunting training with uh, some AKC hunt test judges and field judges around in the area. Didn't actually enter a hunt test with a Bracco until several years later with my bitch Delaney. Um, she was the second junior hunter titled Bracco in the U.S., the first bitch. That was in 2011. Um, okay. But it, there was a, a lag there of, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> the people around me didn't know much what they were doing. We were, um, it was kind of the blind leading the blind, but um, we eventually were able to, to get involved in that side of things too. Um, and it, it's been a great adventure. We've met a lot of really, really fun people. Yeah. And now you're a veterinarian. So you, is that something you wanted to be since you were a little girl? Yep. I was, again, the kid with all the animals, you know, um, just grew up loving dogs, you know, wanting to, to be a vet since before I can remember. And, um, now I graduated from the university of Florida college of veterinary medicine, um, in 2017. And now I'm a faculty ER doctor at the university. I'm doing small animal emergency work. That, that keeps you on your toes. Yep. And sleepy most of the time. <laughs> There's a lot of caffeine in my life. <laughs> where you have kind of been and where you're going now, I mean, as a veterinarian, the Bracco owner enthusiast, you're now the president of the Bracco Italiano Club of America. And you've, you've held that role for how long? Um, Going way back, the club was formed in 2007. Um, I served as the first president from 2007 to 2008. Um, took a break doing other various roles within the club and then was uh, elected again in 2020, which I've held now until 2022. Okay. The breed and their health has kind of become a passion project for you. I, I really want to get into that. Let's, we can wait on it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is very hard for me. I'm like, I know it's on my agenda for later, um, but but I just love your progression through this and um, how much you've done with the breed in such a short time and that's being recognized around the world. But let's talk a little bit about um, the breed history in general. Do you know how long they've been in the U.S.? Um, that's actually a really interesting question. And I think um, we don't know for sure because we think probably the first Bracco to come to the US ended up in rescue. Um, and we don't know her full story, but um, she was probably brought in in the mid 90s, mid to late 90s. Um, and she, I 
for the life of me, I can't remember the dog's name, but she lived to the ripe old age of 14 or 15 um, prior to, to passing away. And we think she was probably the first or one of the first dogs in the country. Um, and then there were a handful of people around the year 2000 to 2001. That was when many people started importing them. Um, but prior to that, there were just a couple of individuals that had imported primarily from Italy. Um, Teresa Young being one of those. I think she had dogs prior to 2001. Um, Erica Dennis was one of the early um, breed enthusiasts in this country. I think her first dog, she got her first dog around 2001, 2002, is the Bravo won the World Dog Show in 2001. And that was when many of our initial uh, fanciers and breeders first saw it. Um, okay. And that was kind of the beginning of the breed rising in popularity in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And, you know, while it's just become the latest AKC recognized breed, so I think they're the 200th recognized breed right now by the American Kennel Club. So while they're new, they're actually an ancient breed. And um, just some of the readings and findings I've done, it was like, some will say 5th, 6th B.C., and then you see 19th century. Um, but can you kind of dig into that history a little bit about, um, you know, what happened in the breed and, and how they almost were gone and then they're, they're split between two. It's kind of a lot of history I'm asking of you, but if you can just maybe give us a little summary of it. Definitely. And so I think the actual concrete records going back to like the fourth to fifth century BC are mostly lost at this point. I've tried to find the, you know, what concrete records we have. And, and there really aren't many, obviously, going back quite that far. But from the oral history that we have, we know that they are a very ancient breed, probably dating back to around that time where there was crossing between like some mastiff type dogs and some hound type dogs to create this heavy bodied hunting dog. Um, they peaked really, um, by the Renaissance, but even before that, like the Middle Ages, they were a distinct breed. And between like the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, they started to be exported across Europe um, because they were primarily owned by like royalty and aristocrats. And so they were used almost as like a, a bargaining chip or a you know, token of gratitude. Here is my fine hunting dog. Um, thank you for your business. <laughs> um, but where they were spread throughout Europe, mostly they were absorbed into the the breeds and the dogs in that country and we didn't really see too much of of the breed develop elsewhere but in Italy um by the renaissance they were very popular at that point they used nets instead of guns to to catch the birds so they were known as like the the brachy of the net um and the breed continued until like the late 1800s where at that point, um, people had been crossing them with hounds and they were too heavy bodied, um, not healthy. And so at that point, there was a, an effort to kind of reconstitute the true Bracco. Um, historically, there were two varieties, um, one from Piedmont, which Piedmont is in Northern Italy is a little more mountainous. And so those dogs were lighter built, also lighter in color. So the orange and white dog. Um, meant to run through the mountains. Um, they were more of a galloping dog, actually, as opposed to a trotting dog. Um, and then the Bracco of Lombardy, 
the Lombard pointer was meant for the lowlands and the marshes. And so he's a little heavier bodied, a little bit bigger, um, but also a trotting dog. And so when we had the kind of crisis of, um, you know, genetic crisis in the late 1800s, those two uh, varieties still existed. And the decision was made in the 1920s to combine them because most of at that point, what kept them apart. So like size differences and construction differences, um, they felt weren't holding up scientifically that they were still the same breed. Um, and there was a lot of overlap between the varieties at that point in time. And so they combined the two, um, which was, I think, not without criticism in Italy. There were people who supported it and people who were very much against it. Um, but in a the mid-1920s, I think, was when that happened officially. And so the standard that we have today does have like a, a pretty wide size range. There's a lot of variability there um, to account for the fact that when all of this started, when we started to write down the breed standards, we were combining from two separate varieties and wanted to, to make sure that all of them were covered. Um, Sabi, the Italian breed club, was formed in 1949 um, and had their breed standard written in, at that time. Um, and the breed went to the UK in the 80s, late 80s, I think, um, and then to the US shortly thereafter. Okay. And is the two different varieties, is that also what is related to the different colors of the breed? Yes. Um, and so the um, Bracco from Piedmont was the lighter body, lighter color dog. So like a white to orange and white dog. The Lombard pointer was the brown and white. That's interesting. So like when I'm looking at like the gallop versus the trot, right? In those two different breeds and um, knowing that like, so there is a device that um, people in the breed know about. It's called a, a Braga that, that helps train dogs how to trot. And I think that's actually used quite often over in Italy, isn't it? It is. And, and basically it's a a harness of sorts and there's almost a little saddle that then connects to the back feet and it promotes the dog to trot. Um, there are people that believe in it in Italy and use it a lot. There are people who will say you will always be able to tell a Bracco trained with a Braga because they have a more mechanical movement than a naturally trotting dog. Um, the people that use it say it doesn't create the trot, it just it, you know, um, improves what's already there. Have you ever seen that, that device in use, pers- like in, in person before? Yes, um, and I've attempted to use it on my own dogs. Okay. Um, I, I used it just once, honestly, just to see how it worked. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of legs flailing and silliness um so it it certainly there's a learning curve both for the handler and for the dog Uh, but for me personally I I honestly feel that this breed trots naturally Mm -hmm. you don't need a Braga to make them trot um and if you feel like your dogs are not trotting when they're hunting in the field then consider you know what is your field conditions are you putting them in a condition where they are going to succeed but also a lot of the trot comes from the breed's mentality and they're not 
fast, hard hunters like your GSPs or your English pointers. These are more methodical dogs. And if we start to lose that mentality, then you will lose the trot because they're going to want to gallop and run through the fields as opposed to um, have that effortless trot. Yeah. So go into that a little bit about what you said at the beginning on, on like the field. So your field terrain, is that what you were kind of mentioning that that would help make a difference because they're meant to trot in mountainous hilly areas. So are you saying like flatland that you may not see it as often? Or almost the opposite, if you think about it, because like the original okay. Lombard pointer was the trotting dog and he was the lowlands and the marshes and the flat fields. Um, and that gives the dog space to trot smoothly without having to change speeds, without having to climb up terrain. Um, if you put a, a dog in, you know, in the woods, they're going to be jumping over things. They're not going to have that smooth area to trot on. Um, but if you are on that flat terrain, that's when it really comes down to the dog's mentality in the field, because the, the thoughtful dog will trot back and forth and quarter in front of you slower than the dog that has like the high octane, I'm going to, you know, go through at 50 miles an hour and find these birds, you know, that's not typical for the Bracco. Um, the Bracco is a, a slower hunting dog, um, which in the U.S., I think to a lesser degree, but, but even in Italy, um, they have seen some breeders trying to make their dogs faster in the fields to compete in field trials because the Bracco will always be slower than your gallopers. Um, and some of that is partially why, you know, maybe the Braga is used to make them faster um, and to be more competitive in field trials. But there are, again, some people who have dogs galloping in the field um, to be competitive in, in the field trials in Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's part of the reason why we, we want to try to maintain this as a, a trotting dog. And as the breed becomes more popular and people want to, to trial them, it's important to remember that, yes, they are excellent hunting dogs, but there's so much that goes into what makes the Bracco the Bracco. Um, and it's very different from a lot of the other breeds. And if you see one tearing through a field galloping, you know, at top speed, um, that's not typical for the breed. Mm -hmm. At the beginning, I noticed at the beginning, like when you first hit a field, they're, they're going to gallop, they're going to be kind of balls out. Right. And yep. then, and then they're going to settle into it. And, and even I think as they age and they sort out, like I can maintain myself more if I continue this movement than if I go balls out for 30 minutes, <laughs> they, yep. they sort that out as they age and they mature. Yep. And there's a, a great, um, review article um, by one of our Italian breeders that basically says we talk about the trot but it's important to remember like why and when does Bracco gallop and like you said right when they hit the field they're probably going to gallop and then if they're recrossing terrain they've already been through they may gallop some um, but the quality of the trot is as important as the quantity of the trot, you know, if, mm -hmm. or even more, more important, again, depending on the situation, um, and like young dogs, who knows what they're going to do. <laughs> yeah. They just don't, they aren't really sure what they're going to do. No. No. <laughs> they're going to find birds and deer poop and all kinds of fun stuff. Yep. And rolling yeah. it dead animals, <laughs> dead porcupines. Yep. yep. They do that. <laughs> Exactly. Um, I wanted to give it to compare them 
to the Spinoni? Because I do get that question a lot. I'm sure you do of, is this a short coded Spinoni? And um, I think my first answer to that was my husband judged the first national um, hunt test for the Bracco. Mm -hmm. And, and he was really planning on it kind of being a, gosh, I don't want to, he's planning on it working like a Spinoni. Mm -hmm. And he was very, very surprised because I had loved and wanted the breed for a long time. So I was very excited that he was going to get a chance to watch them in the field. And he was like, oh, they're not going to do anything. And, and he was very surprised. And it actually was the way I got kind of the okay to get the breed because he saw how much more um, hard going and I would say bigger running um, than the Spinoni. And And that's not, you know, saying Spinoni are not or a lesser breed of any sort is just, just very, it's very different because it's not just a smooth coated Spinoni. They're so different. Can you talk a little bit about those differences? Yep, absolutely. And I think you've really hit on one of the big ones and it, you can see it in the field and, and just watching them move around, whether that's, you know, in the yard in the, the show ring, whatever, but, um, the Spinoni has a slower trot. They move more slowly. The Bracco has the, a very similar structural trot, but they do it faster. And they do have um, you know, similar angulations, so like similar reach and drive ultimately for these dogs, like structurally creating their trot, but they move faster. They are, um, you know, one, one description that was given to me by one of uh, our Italian judges was the Bracco should not have fire in his eyes unless he is in the field. And so in the home around, like they're very kind hearted dogs. They don't have that hard expression, but when they're out in the field, the fire is lit and they turn up the octane. Like they, they I love that. And, and um, I, another similar example was, um, was actually the first hunt test that I did with my bitch Delaney. Um, she was, um, oh, had just had a litter of puppies. She was fat and saggy and you know I I will be the I have no idea what that would be like (laughs) (laughs) oh I will be the first to say like she um was very well fed um because she I think she was still getting puppy food she might have just weaned her babies like she she was um did she get ice cream at midnight too yep she was was not in a hard lean field shape by any means and um, she earned the nickname Krispy Kreme Donut Dog oh my before gosh. she even got in the field. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm, this is embarrassing. Like, I hope this dog doesn't make a fool of me. And of course, everyone it was like, oh, it's a Bracco. So everyone was following behind on the hunt test. And um, of course, yep. There were probably 10 or 12 people walking with us. And she knocked it out of the park. You know, she got there and she worked and she, she also had a beautiful trot, but she worked fast. She worked hard. She slammed on points like, um, and one not ideal situation. It was a junior hunt test, but, um, she, we shot the blank and the bird flew and she jumped up and, um, caught the bird. And I heard from the background, like, Oh, donut dog can fly oh my gosh (laughs) but everyone was really impressed and shocked because you know the kind of roly-poly happy you know goofy dog just 
turned a 180. Yeah. And she's like, I'm here to do my job and I'm going to find birds. I'm going to find all the birds that you other, you know, dogs missed. And it it was a great time. Um, and obviously she passed with flying colors, but, um, very different. Um, you look at them and you expect one thing Mm -hmm. and you get them in the field and you are surprised until you learn what to expect from them. Um, and I've had, um, trainers I've worked with say the same thing, say, I didn't expect them to do, to run like that. They always say that. Yes. And, uh, you know, or I didn't expect them to run period, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, um, but they, take their job in the field very seriously. It's a really beautiful thing to see. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh. Yeah. What about the top lines of Spinoni versus the Bracco? Both of them have what's called a, a broken top line. And so there's two lines, one starting at the withers to roughly the 11th uh, dorsal vertebra. So kind of mid back. And then the second arches to, to connect to the croup. Both of, of that is, is typical of the, the trotting dog, um, but the Spinoni does have a little bit more arch over the loin typically. Um, the standards are um, very similarly worded. Um, the Spinoni, I think, says arched to the croup where the Bracco says a, a slight rise. Um, so very small differences in, in how the top line is described, but the Spinoni does typically have a little bit more rise um, to, to the croup and to the pelvis and the Bracco. Um, but structurally they're very similar. And, and that break in the top line is meant to accommodate the terrain as well of how there's like a bend and a flex, um, to be able to work that trot. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. To give them flexibility in their movement. And you'll notice, um, when they trot, they should hold their top line. Um, and, Again, like I, I think one of the most interesting and fun parts about the breed is that everything structurally that you see in the Bracco corresponds to the work that they are meant to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and chicken or the egg, who knows, but it, it's a really cool system. What is it um, that the breed had to go through the numbers and, and events and such that they needed to get recognized? The Bracco's um, process to, to become AKC recognized has been a, a long one. Um, the first step is to join the Foundation Stock Service, which is kind of the, the rare breed recognition part of AKC. And the Bracco um, was recognized by FSS in 2001. Um, at that time, we had the North American Bracco Italiano Club, which was kind of like a loosely formed network of owners. Um, and by the time I got involved with the breed in like 2005, um, there wasn't as much like communication. There were still people very much that wanted to do things, but the, the structure of the, the organization wasn't quite meeting the, the needs of the people. Um, and so that was when we decided to, to have the Bracco Italiano Club of America. But that first step through FSS was done in 2001. And then it was not until 2019 that the breed moved into the miscellaneous class, 
which in order to do that, we had to have a, an organized breed club with bylaws, code of ethics, a board of directors, and evidence of a growing membership across the country. Um, and um, I tried to remember it what, what stage the numbers uh, were for AKC, like for cutoffs, but about 300 dogs um, with three generation pedigrees, um, you know, were needed in AKC and not necessarily like all alive at the same time, but um, needed a certain number of pedigrees, needed to show that there were people in the breed who wanted to work for this breed and to preserve it um, in order to start that next step towards full recognition. And so it's foundation stock service, miscellaneous, and then, then full recognition and going into the sporting group. Um, that last step um, is primarily organizational in that making sure that the standard is the way it needs to be to be understood by judges, that um, we have judges education and shows set up, that we can host events, that we can support our members in the way that clubs need to, um, and, and not that we're just a group of names on a piece of paper. Um, and with that, again, a lot of it was semantics and paperwork and, you know, changing small words here and there and bylaws, making sure that um, it fit AKC's recommendations for like Robert's rules and things like that for uh, club meetings. But honestly, uh, most of the legwork happened prior to going into the miscellaneous group. And that was when we're educating people about the breed. We're starting to educate judges. We're um, promoting the dog as a working breed, getting people into hunt tests, um, celebrating those that do the other things. Like we have a couple of agility to <laughs> bracky, um, you know, things like that. But it's um, it's taken over twenty years. Um, which I think, I, I don't know what the record is for AKC, but I feel like that's probably got to be up there. Yeah. I was um, just wondering, like, what is it typically or an average? Do you, do you have any idea? Um, for the time in foundation stock service, I don't know, but I, I do know that I've had several comments that 19 years was very high. Um, <laughs> I would expect, I mean, probably around four or five, um, is probably average. Um, wow. Okay. And then in the yeah. miscellaneous uh, group, there is, but you have to be um, in the miscellaneous group, a minimum of one year. Um, typically it's like two to three years. And we were um, in the miscellaneous group for three years prior to moving into full recognition. And a lot of that was from our perspective as a club, we've, I say we like, I've, I've always felt for this, um, breed that if we are going into AKC, we need to do it right. We need mm -hmm. to do it where when we have that increase in publicity with AKC, that we have all of our T's crossed, all of our I's dotted, that we have a strong judges education program, that we have mentors available who want to get people started in, you know, hunt testing and getting their dogs started on birds, and um, that we are able to support our hunting members as we move into this very like show centric organization, even though AKC is a lot more than just dog shows. Um, it has that wrap of being 
the show dog organization. Um, yeah. And the last thing we wanted was there to be a divide. Um, we don't want to see this breed split into field and show dogs. And that was honestly part of the driving force for some of us. And I think for me to gain AKC recognition, even though that seems kind of backwards that um, in the, I think it would have been around 2012, 2013, we did actually have a, a second club form um, strictly for AKC recognition. And um, we ultimately decided to have everyone come under one roof because we don't want just show dogs, you know, and a lot of our hunters would have been left behind in that group. And um, we said, hey, we'll do it. Like we want to move forward with AKC, but we want to make sure that we get everyone involved. Like we don't want one group ostracized. We don't want one group to think, nope, you're just doing it for the show points. I want nothing to do with this, you know, and it has been a long, difficult journey <laughs> with that. Yeah. And like, whenever there are people passionate about things, there are big opinions. Um, and that is no exception. Um, and hopefully we can continue to support all of our members doing what they want with their dogs, you know, and really promoting the breed as a dual dog. And so that as many dogs as possible that are in the show ring also are in the field. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and that we promote dual champions with hunt and show titles, um, which with our first weekend out with AKC, I was really happy. The vast majority, um, I don't want to say all because I feel, I don't honestly know the field titles on all of them, but almost all or all of them um, that won through this past weekend across the country um, had hunt and show titles, which is amazing. Um, you know, and the more that we can have of that, the better. With the duration that it took to get that recognition, do you think a lot of it had to do with the group that had pushback of just not wanting the breed to become recognized? Um, I think potentially, you know, at least in part. Okay. Um, some of it was, again, we, we don't want to rush into things. And I, that was something mm -hmm. that we said many times is like we want to make sure that we have the infrastructure to support this breed and to promote it as a hunting dog when we go into AKC and that took a couple of years I'm um, not 19 years <laughs> but a couple of years <laughs> yeah <laughs> um you know and so that that did add some time um and there are people in the breed who do not support AKC recognition um they are still for the most part in the club, you know, mm -hmm. and I think that's important one, you know, they keep us honest. If they mm -hmm. say, I see this breed going in a bad direction, I hope we listen, you know? Yeah. Um, and they have strengths to add to this as well. And um, I had a discussion with someone several months ago and they said, well, why would you do a, a knob to hunt test? And I'm like, why would we not? you know, we're AKC recognized, but it's not exclusive. You know, mm -hmm. there are people who will still prefer NAVDA. There's the Versatile Hunting Dog Federation. Um, I think I've got the acronym correct. Yep, you did. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, you know, those folks still bring a lot to our breed mm -hmm. and they are still a very important part of 
what this breed is as a whole. And I want to make sure that we have a place for everyone in this breed in the club, um, because I think we're strongest together. And it's kind of a hodgepodge, weird little family, but, um, you know, I think we're doing good things for the breed. Um, and the more that we can expose new owners to the hunt testing side of things and getting their dogs on birds and having mentors available, whether they're, you know, from NAVDA or AKC, you know, I don't care. <laughs> but, know. but to be fair and vice versa, right? So to have those in the field that only have interest in the field, to be able to at least understand and appreciate correct structure and, and how important structure is for that working animal and not just structure, but breed characteristics and breed type. So, you know, it, all that is very important to the breed itself, the Bracco Italiano. And, you know, I look at like just the, with the NAVDA testing system, which I love, but it's a testing system. It's not, it's not, uh, they don't provide breed standards. So you could be a NAVDA breeder and have, uh, you know, the breed look just about like anything you'd like it to look like yep, yep. And, <laughs> and still register it that way. Yep. And that's such an important point too. And, um, you know, I might've mentioned earlier, but one of my favorite things about this breed is how everything structurally reflects what they do in their work. Um, and whether folks want to show or whatever, but as long as they have an understanding of what the Bracco is and, and what it should be, um, and breed to that standard. And that also ties in with the working standard, which no testing venue really works against or, or uh, you know, compares the dogs to. The Italians have a, a very detailed working standard and how the dogs should be in the field. Um, AKC judges don't use that standard. NAVDA judges don't use that standard. It's very um, breed specific and how we will tie that into where the breed is going in this country, you know, is still kind of up in the air, but I think it's a very important part of what the breed is and the breed's identity. And we're working on finding a way, you know, like at our national specialty to have that available so that dogs are judged, not just on their ability to point and find birds, but how they work the field so that we can stay true to the, to the breed's heritage. Mm -hmm. And so what, what exactly does the AKC recognition mean for the breed? Is there anything above and beyond the fact that they can now participate in sanctioned AKC events and earn points? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, from the, the big perspective, obviously we will have a, an increase in publicity and popularity of the breed, which is a double-edged sword. You know, we love to see people get involved in the breed. We're going to have some really amazing new faces who want to work to improve and to preserve our breed. Um, and then there will also be people who want a Bracco who have no business having one. Um, and um, that will be important in how we as owners and breeders and club members navigate um, the next months to years with AKC. Um, with AKC there, you know, there's the sanctioned events, there is the, um, 
registry side of things and having that registry available, I think will be beneficial. There's the AKC Canine Health Foundation, which um, is one of the top providers of like research funding um, for veterinary research, which um, for myself as a veterinarian and researcher, but also as a BRCA person, um, that's really important um, having that available. And while the Health Foundation funding is available to non-AKC breeds, like it's it's not specific, but um, being able to show that we are, you know, kind of a part of the AKC organization, we're all working together, we have organized, um, you know, breed members and, and fanciers in this country, I think we'll all be positive, um, you know, from that perspective. Um, we're not just a couple of people who have dogs who might want to do some research. It's like, no, we are we are established here. We are here to stay, and um, we want to help our breed's health. Um, and then having not just the sanctioned shows, but we have the the field trials are available now. Um, the breed has already competed in agility and uh, some of the other like companion events. But I think getting more people involved and with their dogs and various events is gonna be a really fun thing to watch over the next several months because um, it's always wonderful to, to watch people work. Doing things with their dogs. dogs. Yep. Yes, yep. absolutely. No, I completely agree. My, my concern, my only concern is that, you know, anytime you have a competitive venue, so I, I've seen it even happening, happening with dock diving is that you get, you get really competitive in whatever venue it is that you love and you start breeding for that specifically, that extreme, right? And that's why you're, you know, you've already mentioned it's important that we have this balance and, and keep both in mind, but we have that, that show venue that's competitive. And now we have the field trial venue, which is different from the hunt test. So the field trial is typically a trial or our walking ones. Um, but, you know, I just wonder if we're going to start seeing those, those differences with the breeds, like we've seen in the setters and, um, the, the retrievers and of, of the differences in the split in the breed, but hard to say. Yeah, it is, it is hard to say. And as a club, we're doing what we can as much as we can to prevent that. And, you know, from the show side, educating the judges, and the, these are first and foremost, a functional hunting dog and the when you go in the ring, that is what you are judging yeah. uh, and making sure that they know what the Bracco should be and judge by that standard um, because breeders will breed what wins in the ring. Right. And if what wins in the ring is what it should be, I'm okay with that, you know, <laughs> but it, ultimately it's what the judges pick um, mm -hmm. and we are trying to amp up our judges education program as much as possible to make sure that our AKC judges are looking at these dogs appropriately um, mm -hmm. and also making that education available to all of our members and breeders and whoever wants to see it, um, you know, yeah. looking to get it recorded and on the website, potentially on YouTube so that if someone is new to the breed, they can look through it, you know, and, and hopefully reflect on what their own dogs are and, and breed to a standard as opposed to breeding to what you know wins um which 
is tough, you know, um, because people, people will want to win. Like I mentioned, the dogs, even in, in Italy who are bred for the field trials to be faster. Um, mm. My biggest hope for this breed is that the people getting involved now understand the heritage of the Bracco and respect it. Um, because this breed has been around for over 2000 years. Let's not be the ones to screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not. <laughs> so speaking on this, on the first weekend of the dogs out and, you know, I'd be amiss to say that I didn't see some chatter already on social media about, about the judging and, you know, they're, these aren't the typical sporting dogs. Stop thinking that they should be. And so what, what has been your initial kind of takeaway or feedback that you've heard um, on this, on this first week out? Yeah. And I'm um, so far, I've heard really positive things. Um, there, there will always be a little chatter, but um, there were a lot of very nice dogs that were rewarded over the past week. Um, and I think the vast majority of them, I was very grateful to say, okay, great. They read the standard. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's into judges education, um, you know, but there were some very, very nice dogs. Um, we now have a first female and first male, uh, AKC confirmation champions, uh, mm -hmm. a group win by a Bracco, like first day out, which is, yeah. um, you know, very, very deserving. And, um, we'll just keep continuing to push the judges education and the confirmation education so that when dogs come in the ring, they're being, you know, judged appropriately. Um, but so far, I think, again, there have been some very nice dogs rewarded. Yeah. So what's difficult is to get a big enough ring to really be able to see these dogs move. How do you do that? And I mean, I'm even asking as a handler, as an owner, how are we able to get our dogs to make this extension that they have naturally and be able to get that looked at when, when you're put in this small square box that as soon as you hit it, you're turning a corner and you lose it. Yeah. And that is tough. Um, I think from just a, like a handler perspective, taking your turns as gently as possible. Um, so that your dog is able to take that, that turn without losing its stride. And a, a trick that was taught to me is when you get the end, get to the end of the line in front of you, if you are gating by yourself, keep going, like you can overlap um, mm. so that you get a few more strides and hopefully allow your dog that, that full extension. Um, and then just go back to your place at the end of the line afterward. Um, that has helped me in the past with, with these dogs. Um, one thing that we've looked at and um, actually I need to revisit is there is the potential to require a larger ring um, for the showing and um, we can do that the breed club can do that I I believe so and I'm trying to remember okay. it. I, um, we were looking into it and there was some glitch and there's something where it was like, oh, okay, maybe this won't work or maybe we won't be able to do it, but I need to look back into it because I think the shepherds do require like a larger ring. Mm, um, okay. Not much of a difference though, um, mm. but at least a little bit. And then obviously for things like national specialties, like if someone in the breed has control over the ring, like let's make it big. <laughs> yeah. Like we did in Colorado, the big outdoor grass, it, it was amazing. 
It was amazing. Yeah. And, and even in Minnesota, it was great. I yeah, think they look their best outside. Yes. And one thing for the breed is even in a short area, you can see that they have a very fluid trot, that they have great reach and drive and, you know, extension to that, that movement. Um, you're never going to see that beautiful extended, you know, crazy flying trot that you'll see out, you know, in the field or in a, a very large ring, but judges who know what they're looking for should still be able to say that dog floats. Mm -hmm. It's moving like a Bracco, you know? Um, yeah. That would be a great comparison video, wouldn't it? To have, have the same dog being, watching them open up out in a field versus what that dog looks like on a, on a show lead. Yeah. That video would be really, really cool to do. And honestly, um, relatively easy to do. I, I just did, um, kind of like a, a handling picture series that I, I put on Facebook a couple of days ago, just okay. like, don't overstretch them. You know, like they're, they're a dog of moderation. Um, even just loose lead running in a, a large area versus trying to get them up to speed, um, mm -hmm. you know, in a short, short ring. And I think another thing that handlers will face with this breed is um, there are several judges that are like, slow them down, you know, and you don't, you don't need to speed around the ring, but the Bracco moves at the speed the Bracco moves and they have massive stride. It, they're not slow dogs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that size. Some of the characteristic characteristics here of the Bracco, you know, for people that might be interested in them, um, they are going to gain in popularity quite quickly. I know um, a lot of handlers were very excited about the breed getting recognized and being able to try to find, you know, potential dogs to be specialing because they're, e they're an easy dog to be mm -hmm. completely honest. They're an easy dog. Um, you know, the coat maintenance is little to none. They're adorable. They get along with everybody. <laughs> we can get into some of the negatives in a little bit, <laughs> but um, let's, what, why don't you talk about that? The size, the size of the males and females, since you did mention earlier, there's some variation there. Yep. And, um, you know, no, no surprise to anybody. They're, they're big dogs. Um, the size, the height of the withers is between like 21 and 27 inches. The females usually being on the lower side. So like less than 25 inches um, and the males being greater than 23. So like 23 to 27. Um, those aren't disqualifying um, faults for the males and females within that range, but um, there is a decent bit of sexual dimorphism in the breed. So looking at them, you can tell the males from females um, apart, you know, even from a distance um, and weight um, anywhere from 55 to 90 pounds. So uh, some of your big males are. Um, that's big. Not apartment dogs. <laughs> yeah, that's big. <laughs> I, I've seen a couple, you know, at national events that the variety is, is kind of all over the place yet till we get some, you know, more uniformity and conformity into them. But yeah, I saw some of those hundred pounders and like, wow, it, they are big. <laughs> yep. I mean, yeah. people look at Angus and they think he's big and I'm like, oh man, really? <laughs> yep. But um, they're, they're surprisingly light on their feet though. Surprisingly. They, they really are. And even the, you know, 90 pound Bracco 
they float when they move, you know, mm-hmm. and um, the other non-standard attribute of the breed, I think, is that they have springs in their feet and watching <laughs> a 90 pound, you know, dog leap into the air in excitement just makes my day. It's um, the best. The Brocco hop. They're, yep, yeah, they're so silly. Um, <laughs> they're definitely comedians, but the size difference is uh, interesting because um, my male Loki is on the smaller side. Um, and then my mom's older male who passed away a couple years ago, Amma was on the, the taller side. And we have a couple pictures of them standing side by side. And you think there's no way one of these dogs is out of the standard but they're not, they're both there, but, um, <laughs> Loki's about, uh, about 60 pounds, 68, 70 pounds. Sorry. Uh, he's about, uh, sorry. I'm trying to think how much does he weigh? He's about, That's okay. yeah, about 60 pounds. Um, and Emma was every bit of 90 when he was wow. 90. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and both within standard. Yeah. Yep. What about colors? Yep. And so the two color combinations, um, orange and white and brown and white. Um, the orange I love because it it's very striking. Um, you know, it is truly orange. It's not a chestnut. It's not, um, you know, a tan. It is orange. Like someone pulled a crayon out of a box and it, you know, is, is very striking. Um, some dogs do have ticking. Um, some have just a plain white background. Um, and then for the brown dogs, um, another Crayola reference, they're just like a plain Crayola brown. They're not liver. Um, there is a, a metallic sheen to it. The standard refers to it like a monk's frock, which, you know, we all know what that looks like, right? Yep. <laughs> We've all yep. been to the monastery and met the monks. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the best description I have is that it's just a very plain brown. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it is a warmer shade. Um, they can also, um, by standard, be solid white, um, but that's very rare. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen a picture of one solid white Brocco, but I've never met one in person. And it's not ideal because we do prefer that they have a, you know, face mask. Um, yeah. Well, and I wonder if there's any relationship with the deafness with that, which typically is with a all white animal. I would assume so. Um, Mm -hmm. I honestly don't think at least anymore that we have enough white bracky to know for sure what health issues associate with it. But um, anytime you have a solid white animal, you have the risk of health issues. Yeah. What about like the, the like lighter, lighter orange or lemon? It's like a really faded, right? Like I've seen that even in the show ring. So like the different shades of even what we would consider the chestnut, are those allowed? Are they any kind of penalty or DQs? Um, with the brown, there's really just one ideal shade. Um, obviously there will be dogs of, of various shades shown and I think, you know, the color is really the icing on the cake. And so if you have two, two otherwise equal dogs, you know, at that point, color becomes more important. But if you have a very, very nice dog with a, you know, maybe a slightly darker brown color, or, you know, um, more uneven brown, then 
you have to take the whole dog into consideration. But the brown, there's really just that one acceptable color. With the orange, there are some shades. Um, and the lemon color, I, I know what you're referring to. Um, and it's very faded and it's not ideal um, and, and would be faulted. But again, I always think of faulting in the show ring based off of how it affects their ability to function in the field, which, yeah, you know, short of a DQ, um, you know, which would be like tricolor black spots. Um, it is a fault, but if the dog is otherwise an excellent specimen, it's still going to do well in the ring. Um, you know, but with that, again, it, it's not an ideal color. And there are a few dogs that kind of waver on, are they orange or are they brown? Um, depending on the lighting, <laughs> Yeah. And, um, again, not ideal colors and should be bred away from, but take the whole dog into consideration. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Okay. Use it maybe more in your breeding choices at that point. Yep, absolutely. And again, okay. as a, you know, as a judge, you have to say, okay, this dog has a fault and judge it accordingly. But, you know, we have a small gene pool and there are things that need to be removed from the gene pool, but some things that we just need to breed smartly. And I think, you know, the kind of lemon colors or the, the off browns are those that make your choices wisely, but still you can have a very high quality dog that yeah. is a kind of off color. Yeah. You're talking to somebody that breeds black German wire hair pointers. <laughs> <laughs> you understand? I, yes. Yes. I and just you, yeah, you breed for the qualities and how that dog produces. Yep. Show ring is secondary for some. Yep. So yes. You have to find a balance. Yes. Yes. What about the field and trainability of the Bracco? Yeah. Um, they have a very different attitude than a lot of your other pointing breeds. Um, the standard describes them as being thoughtful. And I think that's an important word to remember with them. It can sometimes translate as too stubborn. Um, but there was um, a saying that someone had on, on Facebook, one of our Italian hunters a, a while ago that said, you do not command the Bracco, you talk. Um, and they have to have some kind of understanding of what you want from them. And um, they are they very much want to please, but they also have minds of their own. They're very intelligent dogs. And if they think they know a better way to do something than you do, they will probably give it a try their way at least once. Um, <laughs> like that. They're generally um, this infuriating combination of stubborn and soft. Um, a lot of them will shut down if you use too harsh of correction. Um, and it's not so much for all of them that they're timid, but more they say, no, I'm not going to deal with you right now. <laughs> you know, and if a breed had a middle finger, I think the Bracco would be that breed. Um, <laughs> and they're like, no, you're going to yell at me and I'm not, no. And um, no, not today, Karen. So it, there has to be <laughs> a, a collaboration when you work with them. And once you're on the same page, like it's a beautiful thing and it's a beautiful relationship that you can build with them. Um, uh, one comparison that I've used that I heard many years ago was um, for many of your hunting breeds, they're 
push button dogs. You figure out how to push their buttons and they'll do whatever you ask. The Bracco is not that way. Like there has to be some reasoning involved there. You know, you have to convince them, okay, I know where the birds are. We're working together here. And then they'll decide, okay, you do know what you're talking about. All right, I will hunt for you. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas with like some of your short hairs and stuff, you figure out the commands and they they work within the box that you give them. Um, the Bracco does not have a box. <laughs> um, and again, it, it the ultimate like your your end product is amazing, but they're they work differently. They are trained differently. Um, and I think you just have to have a sense of humor when you're training them because they will think of things to do their way and they might come back and say, okay, that didn't work. Let's do it your way from now on, you know, but you, there is some reasoning involved with them. Um, They don't look that smart, but I, they're smarter than we give them credit for a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if, if a trainer that approaches it, training methods the same way with every single dog, if they get a Bracco in, it is going to be the most frustrating breed for them because they are not the German short hair pointer that can take a lot. And I don't even want to use the word pressure. It's just in general, they just really, um, they're really anxious to kind of please you, but like you said, may p- preferably on their own terms and how they would like to see that work itself out. <laughs> I, I think of them kind of like toddlers, very, very athletic toddlers because they love you so much and they want to make you happy, but also they're going to go do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get mad at them and they, it just breaks their heart. Yes. <laughs> you know, yes. but they're going to go do that other thing again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just got to give it a try. You just yeah. never know. Yeah. So I emailed Maria Bondi at um, the NAVDA office this morning, because as I was kind of preparing for our conversation today, I was really curious to see and know what has been accomplished in the NAVDA system with them. So, and, and I don't know how much of this that you're aware of, but she did pull stats back from 1969 until today. So whatever is in the books. And of course, there's usually like a week or two, you know, if, if they've been tested in the last week or two, they're not going to be in here. But the very first Bracco was tested in natural ability in 1998. And in utility in 2000 and then at the invitational the first dog went in 2002 i'm sorry 2010 wow yeah so some interesting stats here <laughs> there have been 191 uh Brocky tested in natural ability with only a 69 percent pass rate ouch I bet, I bet some of that is they don't like to swim. (laughs) And then we get to the utility test where only 40 have been tested in utility. That's kind of, that's crazy. That's crazy low. And the, the percentage pass rate in that is 80%. So, which is pretty good. Yeah. Um, We've had 10 prize ones, 14 prize twos and eight price three utility dogs. And, um, there have been six tested at the invitational 
and only one has passed. So those are interesting. some really interesting numbers. And I, yeah, um, I wasn't aware of some of the very, very early uh, NAVDA testing, like in the 1990s. I, I love that. And I wish we knew more about like who those dogs were, um, you know, and maybe yeah. sure someone listening to the podcast will probably know. Um, <laughs> oh, know. I can pull, I can have Maria get them for you. She's great, man. She's, she had these stats to me in 10 minutes from asking. <laughs> yeah. That, I, I love that. Um, yeah. I love the, the history from it. And I can see that with the natural ability, we've, um, I'll use my own dog as an example. He passed. Sure. But, um, with the pheasant tracking, he looked over, he's like, mm, I'm going to go track that pheasant. Like went one <laughs> over and went to that one. And you're like, oh, you, okay. I mean, technically <laughs> what you were supposed to, but okay. Yep. <laughs> no. And I've known a few where they decide, okay, I'm going to track the pheasant, but someone has sandwiches in the parking lot. And like, oh my gosh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, go to get the sandwiches. Um, oh my God. Yeah, seen that a couple of times, but no way, no way. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's interesting. You mentioned the water and some of them take to it really naturally and some of them don't, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I think I have an unfair advantage being in Florida where we have a lot of like, uh, gradual lakes that are warm all year round and they're perfect for training, you know, getting puppies introduced through the water. But, um, again, it's, it's hit or miss. I feel like some of them are like fish. And then some of them could really do without it. (laughs) Yeah. Have you noticed with the swimming part when they swim? So, I mean, my, I feel like my male swims normally, but my bitch swims like a bobber. She's in a bobber position and it's like this. And I actually know a UT prize one dog who swims the same way. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. So have you, I mean, is that typical for the breed that they just don't really have their form down? Like I've even sat in a pool with my bitch and like tried to teach her, this is how we swim all four legs. You're kind of like, you need to be a floating device here. And she's like, Nope, I bob her and I do this. Yeah. I think, um, in the dogs that I've had, it's about 50, 50. Um, okay. I've had some bobbers and they, I think what part of it is, is if they're a little insecure in the water, they may be reaching for the bottom, but I have seen, my dogs swim like that in 20 feet of water, you know, and they're <laughs> doing this number and they'll go retrieve the bumper and, you know, do whatever they need to do. Um, yeah. But then, it's so weird. Yeah. And I, the others swim perfectly like a fish. Um, you know, we had two brothers, Loki and Lou and Loki is a fish. I mean, he swims beautifully and Lou had to have floaties on. <laughs> <laughs> really? You put floaties? I want to see a picture that is so cool. Yeah, I'll have to look it up, but he ended up with floaties on his bum because he was a bobber otherwise. And like, just would jump in the water, would love to swim, but like, okay, we're going to get you floaties because you're really bad at this. Yeah. But it did, did it help him? Like, did it help his body in the water then? A little bit. Like it, it helped his positioning while he was swimming. Um, Mm. And then over time he kind of started to figure out like you swim better when you kick with your back feet as opposed to trying to touch the bottom um but again it's it's about 50 50 I feel like for for mine at least and they're all introduced to water very young very you know right sloped warm water right so weird some of them figure it out and some of them do not (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my bitch loves to swim. There's, there's zero hesitation, but she just is like a bobber out there. It's very difficult to watch. I'm like, at what point do I need to jump in and save you? Cause not today. It's, yeah. I don't want to be today. Yeah. <laughs> Like you're doing great. Just there you go. There you go. <laughs> do Spinoni do that? I don't know. Mm. Uh, Somebody with Spinoni's write me and tell tell me so we can find out. I need to know if if they know how to swim normal or yeah. bobbers. <laughs> as soon as you said bobbers, I'm like, I know exactly what she's talking. <laughs> do you know anything about how many master hunters are in the breed? Um, I don't know, but I can potentially look that up real quick. Um, oh, really? At your fingertips. Wow. Not very That's... many. Okay. <laughs> um, so it's a year old, but there were four. There's four. Okay. Yes. Um, okay. and a handful of senior hunters, um, and then several junior hunters. Yeah. With, with the Brocco, I mean, you're not going to want them. I don't know, maybe you would <laughs> running against fishlas and pointers and wire hairs and short hairs, Britney's in the, in the Casey horseback field trials. Maybe we'll have to have our own Brocco field trial yes, so that I they can be judged to a similar standard. <laughs> I think that would honestly be best um, because they're, they're going to work slower. They're going to be very different in the field. Um, mm-hmm. And I've been with Bracky on horseback and you just, it's a nice leisurely walk, <laughs> but again, they move fast, but they're just, they're more methodical. They, yeah. they they're can, quartering. Yep. They're quartering and they can, they can run pretty wide, but not, not like your, your short hairs or your English pointers. Um, mm-hmm. so they're, I think I would say wider ranging than Vishla's and probably a little bit more than Spinoni, but, um, they're kind of an intermediate. What about the, their temperament? How are they to live with around kids, other dogs? What's your input there? That's probably my favorite part about them. Um, they're just lovely cuddle bugs. Um, they're comedians. Um, I think it's a little bit like, um, like I said, living with a, a toddler as opposed to a, a dog that, you know, will lay on the floor. If I'm actually at the table, because if I was doing this on the couch, I, there would be feet, you know, he likes to lay on his back and like reach over and then push his feet in front of the computer. Um, <laughs> you know, but every morning when I have my coffee, there's a Bracco attached to my hip. Um, yeah. you know, they're Velcro dogs. Yep. They are. And interestingly like they're definitely velcro dogs but they also have their way of saying okay i've had enough and i'm gonna go take you know go have my own space but you need to be prepared to have a 80 pound dog pushed up against you most of the time um but they're in in my experience with the breed um great with other dogs you know obviously a lot of it goes down to socializing them as puppies but great with other dogs very patient great with kids um good with cats and, and other little furry things for the most part. Um, remember these are hunting dogs, but um, Loki lives with three cats. He learned very quickly that they are claws um, and that was enough for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and now um, he gives the cats a wide berth and they can shoo him into the other room with a look. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
they're, no. they're not necessarily brave. <laughs> <laughs> True. I love that too, though. I don't like, I don't have to worry about them bringing me a chicken. I don't have to worry about them bringing me a baby goat like the wire hairs do. Um, you know, it's, I, I like that. And, and even when we have, um, when we keep our, or we have litters of wire hair puppies here, I really like to have them a hundred percent raised with the Brocco. And, um, my husband doesn't appreciate cause he thinks that they pick up bad habits <laughs> from them. <laughs> like I want to, I want it acting like a wire hair, not a Brocco. I'm like, well, I completely disagree with that. <laughs> But I do, I love their demeanor because they don't know an enemy. They don't, you know, they, they never come up, but they don't posture. Um, I don't know, maybe some do, but mine yeah. don't. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've never really had an aggressive dog. Like I, the posture yeah. is minimal. They're, um, you know, a great example was we did a kind of mini gathering. Um, God, it's been 10 years ago or something now in Virginia and we were all in um, somebody's backyard and there were probably seven or eight dogs most of them were intact males just had just met and they were playing and running and just having a grand time there was no growling no hackles raised nothing mm -hmm. yeah. and um they're just they're very gentle dogs they're very kind dogs um and they're goofy as heck like <laughs> Like, tell me your favorite goofy story of your dog. Oh, gosh, there are so many. Um, <laughs> probably just the favorite I have is Loki, you know, being the ultimate carnivore, loves um, spinach and kale and, you know, Brussels sprouts. And so if we're cooking, he's always in the kitchen and he can't catch. Like, there, there's no depth perception. You throw food <laughs> in the mouth, opens a second later. Uh, you know, it hits him on the head. But the number of times he's bonked his head on the counter trying to catch a vegetable <laughs> is shameful. <laughs> but Yet you keep throwing him for him. Oh, of course. Of course. Um, you know, and watching the jowls fly through the air as he tries to catch it. Um, but they're, they're fun to have. You have to have a sense of humor and you have to, you know, be prepared that they're going to do things their way. Um, but they're honestly the best companion you could ask for. In, in my opinion, I'm maybe biased, but <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people interested in the breed that don't hunt mm -hmm. and not, not for show either. They just want them as a pet. And, um, what's your thought on that? Yeah. And, I think if you're able to give them time and exercise every day, like they, they don't have to hunt, um, but they need some kind of a job. They need mental and physical stimulation every day. Um, you know, I think it would be, you know, narrow-minded maybe to say the only home a Braco is happy in is a hunting home. You know, um, they're very happy there. That is where they thrive. Don't get me wrong, but mm -hmm. I, I think that there is definitely a place for them as family dogs, but I also think we should encourage as much as possible for people getting them as pets, you know, to make great pets, I own a hunt test, you know, like, yeah. you know, meet someone in your area, get, you know, get involved, even if it's just for a little bit or just for fun, you know, um, because I think everyone even if you just got a Bracco for a pet, you can appreciate seeing them do what they're meant to do. Um, 
but I have absolutely no problem with them being pets as long as they can live in a, a home that allows them to exercise and, and things like that. And um, I'll use my couch potato as an example. Um, you know, Loki was diagnosed with kidney disease right before his third birthday. Um, and he's more or less lived in a bubble ever since. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. You know, I take him out to do things and, and we've gone to like a couple of shows, but I, I don't work him hard in the heat and it's always hot here in Florida. Um, so he hasn't done much hunting, you know, we'll do, he, you know, he lives a pet life basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love to get him out and to get him on birds, um, but it's not a big part of his life. Um, and he's very happy. He chases lizards. There are butterflies. You know, we have a big backyard where he can run and stretch his legs and he holds down the couch most of the rest of the day. Um, you know, but he has someone with him basically 24 seven, like, um, my boyfriend works from home. And so Loki lives like a King. Um, you know, there's always (laughs) someone there to do something with him. Um, and I think that's important that absolutely, I think they can be pets. Um, but they don't need to be dogs that are locked in a crate all day while someone's at work. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, or if you do, you know, they need a big outlet for exercise and energy and that time to bond with their people. Um, you know, they're, they're not happy if they're alone all day. Mm-hmm. And so them being a kennel dog, so living in a kennel facility, do you know how, how, if there's been any that have been like that and how they've done or what, or yeah. just personal experience and what you think that how they would do as a kennel dog? I'm, I know of a couple of people that have kept them in there. These are hunters who have them as kennel dogs. Okay. The people that, uh, at least that I know that have the breed that keep them in kennels, like they get them out every day. They work with them every single day. Like a big portion of their day is out working with people. And I think if that's the situation, especially I would say if they get out to hunt, um, they can be very happy dogs that way. Um, but they need to be in a situation where they can get a lot of that one-on-one where they can spend so much of their day running and hunting and and doing what they're meant to do and spending time with their people. And then they happen to sleep in a kennel at night. You know, I think that's one thing. Whereas if you have say like a, a really big kennel facility where there are a bunch of dogs and not every dog gets to go out every day, or, you know, for some, um, you know, people that get them strictly for show, they're in a crate in a van 90% of the time, you know, and mm-hmm. I think those are very different situations. And I don't think the, the latter two where they're not getting that one-on-one and that really intense work time and that time with their people, I don't, you know, if they're just sitting in a box, I don't think that's good for them. And I would probably say that goes for most breeds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I absolutely. With with the rescue dogs that are coming in, I mean, I feel like there's not a lot right now. I think we're going to start seeing uh, some growth in that in our rescue. But of those coming in, what are some of the main reasons that we're getting them? Why are people giving them up? Yeah, um, I think there there are kind of two um, groups of dogs that have come through rescue. Some 
you know, older owners or family situation changes where through no fault of the dog, you know, they're not able to keep them. Um, whether the owners need like medical care or are, you know, moving to a place where they can't take the dog, which anyway. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Personal opinions aside there. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, those um, are a portion of it. And then there are people who are giving up younger dogs who they realize they got in over their heads. Um, yeah, these are big dogs. They shed, they drool. They aren't as high strong as some of the other gun dogs. Um, you know, I, I'll have scarred in my memory the time when my Vishla learned to open the door, went in the house and tore up everything. You know, they're they're not they're not at that level. Um, but they need some kind of daily work or they need, you know, at least some good one-on-one -on -one time. Um, I had one puppy return to me as a, a breeder just a couple of days after they, they got the dog. Um, and the email literally said like, they don't have an off switch. And I'm like, duh, oh, you know, yeah. How are Puppy. you, you know, and, um, you know, I'm still kind of shocked how he managed to, you know, I was in communication with them for quite a while and I'm like, how did you even get one of my dogs if you're that ignorant, but, yeah. um, you know, obviously went and immediately got the dog back. Um, and now he's very, you know, old now and, you know, been with the same family ever since. And, you know, as, as a pet, um, yeah. That was one, and I, I think people see it and they, you know, forget that the, these are hunting dogs. Yes, they can be pets, but they need something to do, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and if you have a big yard and you can exercise them, that may be enough, but you need to realize that they're not just going to go sit quietly in a creek, you know all day long um that if they're in the house with you they want to be with you you know they want to do things with you and some people I, I would say that most of the individuals returning these dogs and putting them in rescue probably don't need any dog but especially a Bracco because they're intelligent they have pretty you know relatively high exercise requirements they can be noisy if they don't get what they want. Um, you know, whether the, it's the kind of wooing monkey noises that they make or the, you know, it's like a motor kind of, it's like a boop, 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 boop. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I've had some hum, you know, they, oh. we know they shouldn't open their mouth. What does the hum sound like? Oh. You know, but loud enough that you can hear it like across the house. Yeah, of course uh, it resonates. Yeah. And it's like, okay, you know, you're not allowed to open your mouth. So you're sitting there humming at me, um, but is that where we get a little bit of the hound? Maybe is in their sound. Yeah, they have a yeah. big noise. They're big, you know, and and when they decide they're going to bark, which some do more than others, there are definitely some that are very vocal. But um, they are loud dogs, and yeah, you know, the Bracco is not where the Bracco wants to be. Um, they will probably let you know about it, and I which is anywhere that's not with you, right? And I think um, I, that's probably honestly what happens to a lot of these people is they're like, oh, it's so great, wonderful, cute puppy. I'm going to go put it in the other room while we do something else. And, and then it starts to scream. 
<laughs> yeah. And especially as puppies. Scream is a nice word for it. Yeah. Uh, and then as puppies, <laughs> they are, um, they can be a handful. But they um, are the cutest puppies. So you forgive them because they're so cute with all their extra skin. They, you do <laughs> forgive them. And then they just keep, they will scream and they will holler and uh, they're, they're very, they're dramatic Italians, but can, you know, what else do you expect? <laughs> and I, I would say, you know, the, there's a lot of drooling, there's shedding and mm-hmm. another, I would say like downside to the breed is that they, they can be noisy, um, you know, just, and I, I not barking like I think of so, you know, other dogs, like the other dog will bark when somebody goes by the window or if they see another dog, the Bracco barks to tell you something, I think. Yeah. I want this. I'm not where I want to be or let's go outside. Or you know, I had to look over because I said the magical words. You <laughs> 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 said outside. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but they will look at you, look you in the eye and bark. Like I'm trying to tell you something. Yes. You're not listening. Yeah. Um, they yell at you. And that's a lot if you're not prepared for it. Yep. Yep. That's that is so perfectly well said from my experience as well. People can knock at the door or walk past and it's never the Bracco that is doing the barking at that. They're just like, Oh, hey, who's that? You want to come hang out? Maybe you got some treats with you? But the mm-hmm. wire hairs are like, bah, 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 bah. So <laughs> Yeah, it's so different. It's so different. Um, what else would you say you're kind of talking on some of the things that would be good, you know, for the breed to have of know that they need to have exercise and um, some structure would be good. What, who else would make um, an, like an ideal owner for the breed? Yeah. And I think honestly, if you could pick the perfect person to own these dogs, it's a hunter who wants a family dog um, that will be able to take this dog out, you know, during hunting season and train on the, the, you know, off months, but then come home and, you know, sleep in the house, lay on the couch with you, you know, be very much a family oriented dog. Um, but outside of, you know, that ideal understanding that there are going to be a lot of people that own these dogs that don't hunt, um, you know, or aren't avid hunters, at least maybe do some hunt testing and, and whatnot. Um, I think having a yard where they can run off lead, um, you know, and stretch their legs is important. Um, I don't think they're appropriate for like apartment life, at least not long-term, um, unless you are very devoted to spending time with them and getting them out to exercise like Mm. significantly every day, which the vast majority of people are, I don't think that's realistic for most people who, um, you know, have jobs and are trying to have this dog in a small space. They're, they're big. They need, they need room, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, farm dogs, they would, you know, they thrive having that space to get out and run and be, hunting dog you know even if it's not organized going out and you know shooting quail it's the birds and the butterflies and the squirrels and you know all of the other things that they can sniff and roll in and be dogs um you know and I yeah I think the city life is not good for them and I think um 
also because they're they're big they're loud they're stinky and hairy and you know that is when I think people get tired of them if you're in such a small space because then you really can't can't get away from the velcro dog right right (laughs) and I and I just want to touch on I mean while they are great with children they're fantastic with children but going into that size and I just don't feel like they have a lot of body awareness and like our children are like bowling pins to them as the bowling ball you know they just they they move their bodies and they knock the kids over and it's it's better now that they're four and eight so they can kind of hold their ground a little bit better but you know when they were smaller you just all of a sudden bloop there goes the kid yep. and they're the Broncos totally unapologetic they're like oh what happened to you yeah. how do you how did you fall down there why are you crying yeah. <laughs> you know they they're just so yeah small children babies like maybe wait a couple of years um even though like i said their temperaments are fantastic with them but the body yeah. awareness is not there at all and that's a great <laughs> way to put it because um i think they don't wag their tails they wag their body whole and body big body yeah wag um you know and especially if they have a full tail it's a weapon oh um, could you imagine i haven't had that yet but i can't imagine that would be painful I, um, one of my, uh, bitch Delaney had a full tail and she would wipe off tables. She, you know, it, it hurt when you hit the back of your leg yeah. and they're such happy dogs, you know, it's always wagging, you know, <laughs> and think, like, the whole butt would move and the tail would go and it just, they, they'll about knock an adult over, um, Gosh. You know, but she was one, um, with kids and and especially when she had puppies she could be very gentle and very delicate but don't be in front of her going down a flight of stairs like mm-hmm. <laughs> because <laughs> the whole body would just wiggle the whole way down and <laughs> you might be collateral damage <laughs> so on that other note who would not be an ideal owner like if you could describe the type of person that should not own a Brocco, who would that be <laughs> It might get a little Freudian here, but like okay. someone who feels like they have to control everything um, because it, these dogs are going to do things they shouldn't. They're going to, you know, have that weird independent streak, um, despite the fact that they are indeed Velcro dogs. They, they're kind of a, a weird mix there. But, um, you know, someone who has this breed in a small space. Um, Again, I, I don't think they're, they're good apartment dogs. Um, <clears throat> one for their well-being to be able to get out and run around and, and burn energy, but also living with them in a small space. Like it's a lot of dog. Um, and there's hair, there's drool, there's noise. And I think that would be a recipe for disaster, um, especially if you're you know the kind of person that everything has to be perfectly clean and everything, you know, we follow this exact schedule and we do all of these things. And the Bracco says, Hey, no. like, not anymore. You don't, anymore, you, don't. <laughs> you know, and I think, um, I've known uh, some people that have had them in apartments, but they're, you know, they've run them several miles every day. They spend a lot of time with them and it was kind of a short-term situation. I'm um, not the dog's entire life being in an apartment. 
um, because it just, I don't think that's going to be where they, they do their best. Yeah. Yep. Let's talk about the health concerns. So, um, which I feel like is one of the most important things when considering this breed is let, you know, being completely transparent here in what, and that the breed has major health concerns. And it's important that when you are researching breeders, that this is probably, I would say, make this your first question you ask them. Um, but that's me. Um, you know, you can look at the track records for ability and such and, but health concerns, what are the chick health requirements? And by chick, if, if I, my listeners have been paying attention kind of through this whole podcast series in general, last couple of years, um, it's, it's what the breed clubs establish and recognize or recommend for testing for each breed, uh, to have done to before they're bred from. So do you want to talk about what those requirements or recommendations are, I should say, for, to get a chick health number? Yep. And so, um, for the Brocco, there are kind of the typical large breed health problems. And then those that are more breed specific, um, elbow and hip dysplasia are two that we test for. Um, and I think as a whole, like our, our breeders have done a really good job of minimizing elbow and hip dysplasia. Um, and so the radiographs and testing um, for those. And then with the skin they have on their face, they're predisposed to some eyelid issues, entropion and ectropion. Um, so getting the um, what used to be surf, but now OFA um, eye screening. And as far as the the chick requirements, um, they don't cover the kidney disease testing yet. <laughs> yeah, that is, um, you know, hopefully on the not too distant horizon. Um, but the hips, elbows, and eyes are the kind of big three for the chick testing, and that have been known, you know, and done in the breed for a very long time. Um, but there is also the issue of renal amyloidosis and, and hereditary kidney disease in the breed, which um, is my area of, of research and kind of a passion project um, for me. Since um, my foundation bitch did have amyloidosis, um, which was not seen on her initial necropsy, she died of kidney disease, and we, we had a full necropsy done. And it wasn't until her offspring started to die of kidney disease that I had archived tissue taken and and sent to um, the International Veterinary Renal Pathology Service um, at the Ohio State. And they confirmed the diagnosis, which um, was devastating. But at the same time, like it has, you know, the silver lining is that I've learned so much about this disease through firsthand experience. not a situation that I would wish upon anyone. Um, but we hope to have kidney disease testing added to the chick requirements, but they do require a certain amount of like foundational research, which I'm in the the process of hopefully, you know, setting up from that for them. Um, there was, um, 
an OFA kidney disease screening test that was available. It is now, um, after talking with them, it has been adjusted some. Um, it's meant only for bull terriers. Um, there are some brachy that were tested, um, but it basically tests a single uh, measurement of urine protein. And it's part of what would need to be you know, used for screening in these dogs, but it is certainly not a standalone test um, and has no predictive value. And so I think that's important if you have someone saying, well, my dog is kidney disease free, you know, through OFA. No, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's a lot yeah. more complicated than that. Um, and unfortunately, at this time, we don't have a predictive test. Um, but the test that we have, so checking the urine for protein and checking blood work allows us to say, is there existing significant kidney disease? which is the best that we can do at this point. You know, my goal and, you know, hopefully something that, that we can see within the next few years would be um, finding a DNA marker um, to start to use for breeding dogs. Um, there are many, many steps in between where we are now and where we would get to that point, but um, we have a plan and hopefully we can move forward with it. Um, but the kidney disease is um, kind of the skeleton in this breed's closet, I think. Um, it's something that has been around for a very long time. Um, in the UK, they have reports back to the uh, late 1990s. So it, I think it has been around longer than that. Um, I've seen it in dogs from many different countries, many different lines. Um, including from Italy. And, you know, I would say until we're able to pin down some kind of like a, a DNA test for this breed saying that a line is free of kidney disease is a slippery slope. Um, mm -hmm. In that, you know, I think more often than not in the lines that I've seen, if you test for it, you find it. Um, which is terrifying. Mm -hmm. uh, there are certainly some that it seems to be, you know, that we haven't seen it in. And I hope that ultimately those lines do end up being free of it. But I think right now, um, you know, every dog should be screened yearly and um, that it should be, you know, have testing done prior to breeding, even though, again, there's no predictive value, but do what we can to kind of limit dogs with this disease being bred. Before their breeding, um, what are the specifics that they can take to their vet and have tested? What are you, what are you recommending? And so the tests, one is to check the urine for protein. And the test for that is called a urine protein creatinine ratio, um, or a UPC. And that can just be run on like free couch urine. Um, and then the other thing that we want to look at is their kidney values on blood work. So um, primarily creatinine, and that can be tested on like a, a standard blood chemistry panel. Um, the other um, biomarker that has gotten some attention uh, with veterinarians over the past few years is called SDMA. Um, it is a good adjunctive test, but it should never be used alone. Um, there have been brachy dying kidney disease with normal SDMA. It, it basically tests a different part of the kidney than is most frequently affected um, in, in brachy. Um, and so that's one you'll see some people, I, I run an SDMA yearly. It's like, oh, that's not enough. You know, mm -hmm. you really need 
the blood and the urine testing ideally every year, or if the dog has a family history of kidney disease, I would say every six months, um, you know, starting at one year of age. The youngest Bracco I know that died of amyloidosis died when he was 13 months old. Wow. Um, and so it, it starts young. Um, mm -hmm. And most dogs, once they're diagnosed, like in hindsight, people can say, well, you know, they, they drank a lot or they had fevers when they were young or, you know, there, there are red flags, but they're so often like nonspecific um, that most people never see it coming. Um, mm -hmm. And the typical age um, that they're dying at is, what would you say? Um, from the studies that we've, we've done, um, five to seven seems to be when, when most of them are affected. Um, that being said, there's a, a pretty large portion of dogs that are affected earlier. Um, and some of that I think we're seeing now because people are testing for it earlier, um, as opposed to just when the dogs get sick. Um, but there are certainly dogs that are affected and getting sick by two to three years of age. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so I would say anything less than seven years old, um, like two to seven is kind of the, the hotbed uh, yeah. you know, for, for diagnosis. And then there are dogs older than that who I've seen diagnosed at, you know, they died of something else. And on postmortem exam, they also had amyloidosis. Um, mm -hmm you know, and there's the potential that that's not hereditary disease, but I think that in a BRCA with amyloid, like at this point, it's hereditary of some form, you know, until proven otherwise, but some dogs through, you know, various uh, genetic expressions may not have it show up until they're older. Okay. And, and if people are testing for this after they start to see symptoms, it's already going to be too late. You typically don't see symptoms until a couple days to a week before yeah. you lose them. Yeah. For um, the, the study that we did kind of <clears throat> looking at um, diagnosis and progression and pathology um, in Brachy, um, the median survival time was 75 days after mm -hmm. diagnosis. And those dogs were for the most part, like they became symptomatic and then were diagnosed. Um, and the 75 days, like half didn't make it as long um, and half made it a bit longer. Um, and historically for amyloidosis, it's like all breeds. Um, survival time after diagnosis is like less than a week. Um, mm. And so it Unfortunately, by the time they're sick, usually the prognosis is very poor. Um, and we're able to provide some treatments. And again, this is something that I hope to, to do more research on, but there are medications that we can use to try to stabilize them um, to slow it down if possible. Um, but right now, like we need a lot more research and, and proof to look at that. There are several medications used in people um, to modulate the um, like mediators that promote amyloid formation. And I, I think that's the future for veterinary medicine too. Um, but, you know, one step at a time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've, you've made a ton of progress though. I mean, if not only bringing attention to it, also the research in it and the last several years, 
at the national event, you have had a team of researchers with you and um, you're making it completely voluntary, but it's also complimentary for people to bring their dogs in and have them tested. And, and that's huge. That is, that is amazing. And I mean, I can't thank you enough for doing that. You know, yeah, it's our, our last nationals. We had 98% of the dogs there were tested. Um, 98 of 98, 98 of the percentage of the dogs in attendance were tested. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's Which incredible. Awesome. Um, and I think, you know, if nothing else, we're diagnosing some of these dogs earlier so that, that their people can do what they can to have more time with them. And, yeah. you know, it, it sounds terrible, but come to terms with the disease as well, because, um, the first I have dog- no idea who anybody who wouldn't come to terms with that. yeah I mean (laughs) oh trust me I've told Loki many times um he he doesn't have amyloidosis he has a very similar form of disease um that we assume is hereditary but I tell him he's gonna live to be 25 yeah fine you know he'll live forever but um the first dog that I lost um of my breeding I like I told you my first uh, bitch had amyloidosis but we didn't confirm that until much later um, but the first dog was, um, a puppy of mine. I say puppy he was seven years old, but, yeah. um, the owner called me and said, he's, he's losing a lot of protein in his urine. You know, what could this be? The vet has no idea. And I immediately was like, oh crap. You know, I, I know what this is. Um, yeah. and he was gone like 10 days later. Um, and it, it was brutal. It was awful um and I just remember I got the call at work and I just like sat down and cried because it was just so overwhelmingly unfair and so unexpected um and I love that dog he wasn't he didn't live with me he wasn't even my dog um you know but his family was like they were amazing they were wonderful and and they agreed to have uh, like kidney tissue sent out for testing when he passed um and so we were able to confirm the amyloid but uh that was that was one of the hardest i mean they're all hard they're all impossible to lose but um that one was really tough yeah to give people an idea so um what is the, so you had 98% that were tested. So, and I know you've done it at least two nationals, right? Are are those the only two that you've done them at? Those are the only two. And then we do like surveys on the off years. um, Okay. Reaching out to the people that were enrolled to see if they had any additional testing done in in between and checking on the dogs. But um, of the dogs tested, each year, um, it's been a little over like one in 10. So a little over 10% of dogs had evidence of kidney disease it, you know, we can't say for sure, like, okay, it's amyloidosis because we don't have the, the kidney biopsies, but, um, you know, it's very concerning because um, that's, these are healthy. Dogs. It's a lot. It's a lot of dogs. Yeah. These are asymptomatic, healthy, happy dogs that went to a dog show. Um, and then had abnormalities on their blood work or their urine. Yeah. To speak on that. Yeah. Um, that's how you and I kind of have formed our relationship, unfortunately. Yeah. 
but um yeah i had i had bracken and talk about um oh shit you know winning best of breed at the national and then won the bella e bravo award at the same national i kind of i kind of drove back home across several states on a high right yeah. super excited about this dog and obviously an image of health or she wouldn't have been able to be amazing in the field and show ring. And gosh, I don't even think I was home for 12 hours till I got the phone call from you of, yeah, yeah, like not, not good. And I'm like, Oh, you're wrong. You know, you got the wrong dog, you know, didn't couldn't come to terms with it. And I, I had her tested three more times over the course of the next six months, just to be like, are you sure it's not a UTI? Are you sure it's not something? And we medicated her for everything. And then finally, yeah, this is what it is. And I think we initially had the thought of less than a year for her at that point, because her levels were so ridiculously critical um, with obviously no symptoms. Yeah. And, uh, but we got her past a year. Yeah. Caught, think- catching it early with, with your help. Yeah. And, you know, if I recall, she, she lived quite a while with the disease. One of the longer of dogs that I know. And, um, you know, you can say that you, you were taking great care of her to have that happen, um, to have her live such a, a good and full life with a terrible disease. Um, but yeah, if there's one thing that people who are interested in this breed should know, it's like, they're not, they're not easy in a lot of ways. They're amazing dogs. Um, but there is this potential of a tragedy, you know, like Mm -hmm. I, there's not really a good way to put it like it, um, watching a two or three-year-old dog that loves life decline and not understand what's happening to them is the worst thing in the world. And if one, you know, if I can do one thing with my research, it's to, make it so that no person or dog has to go through that again, you know, um, because it just tears your heart out. It's awful. It's absolutely awful. And it, it went so quick at the end too. You know, you, she was chasing, chasing around my goats. I said that they don't bring you goats. Well, she chased them, um, but <laughs> she's chasing around my goats that, you know, in the afternoon and the next morning, she was really slow, really slow, really sore. And I immediately took her to the vet. So about a little over an hour drive away. And by the time I got there, she couldn't even walk. So, I mean, it was so, so fast at the end. Yeah. And I think for them, um, they like, they love life so much. And sometimes I joke that they love life so much because they don't know how long they're going to have. Yeah. (laughs) But like it, it, sometimes I think they just, they're able to keep going through that just sheer joy of life, you know, like they just, they love existing and they love chasing the goats and the butterflies and the birds. And, um, you know, it, yeah. Yeah. I I'm mm -hmm, yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So let's talk more about that drool. The drool is real. Um, <laughs> it will be on your cabinets. It will be on your TV. It will on be the on the ceiling. 
Yep. I was going to say on the light bulbs. Yes. <laughs> um, so be prepared for the flingers. Yes. Um, they will hit you in the face. They will <laughs> mark your walls. Um, <laughs> nothing in your house will be free of drool. Neither will your clothing. Yeah. <laughs> That's my favorite. When, when friends meet a Brocco for the first time and then they come out with a sleeve full of their residue. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yes. So, all right. Um, Let's talk about um, where people can find breeders. Where are you recommending? Because I I get that question a lot. And what are you recommending of where they can start looking for a reputable involved breeder? I think on the club website, so the broccoclub.org is a very good place to start. These are people who are involved in, you know, the organized breed. So the, the club, they're coming to club events, they're health testing their dogs. Most of them are, um, you know, hunt testing, showing, you know, having various levels of involvement, but these are, are those that are invested in the breed. Um, you know, and we hope to get more people listed on, on the website, but regardless of where they find a breeder, I think it's important, you know, that they talk about, you know, what are, what are their goals as a breeder? What are they breeding for? What are, you know, what's their health testing? Um, you know, do they hunt with their dogs? Do they show their dogs? Um, and just making sure that the goals of the owner align with the goals of the breeder. Mm -hmm. And also for those that have the breed and aren't, you know, in the parent club yet, it's an important place to be because, you're invested in the breed and where it's going and the future decisions being made. And if you want to have a voice and, and taken, you know, your thoughts into consideration, it's a join and, and be involved. And I know you guys are doing more on the educational front right now. Um, just, I know it's tomorrow, July 6th, you're having a seminar. Can you talk on what that's about? Yep. And so I'm um, tomorrow I'll be talking about the uh, confirmation standard and how it relates to, you know, function, of course, but going through the standard so that people who are new to the breed or people who want a refresher can look at that and kind of understand what we're breeding to from the, you know, physical side of things. Um, and then later this month, um, Erica Dennis, who has been involved with the breed for a, a quite a while, longer than I have, um, past president of Vika, um, she will be talking about the hunting standard. And so again, how, how they should hunt in the field. Um, you know, that, those will be the first two and we hope to add more. Um, and Courtney, if there's something you'd be interested in talking about, I think you would be you know, <laughs> have as well. Um, you know, hope to touch on, um, you know, hunt testing and how to get involved and, and you know, natural ability testing introducing dogs to birds and then obviously, you know, training at a higher level too. Um, you know, because we do have um, some folks that have awesome dogs in the field and we want to see them succeed and provide whatever we can, you know, as the breed club to support that. Yeah. Awesome. And what is the website for that? Uh, the broccoclub.org. Okay. Uh, and we have a uh, pretty active Facebook group as well. Um, Vice President Gary Lewis is our like uh, social media guru. <laughs> <laughs> um, He's very good. He, yep, he keeps it up to date, and um, it's actually it's been very busy recently with everybody's accomplishments. Um, but we try to 
have you know some good discussion there and um, post any club uh, events and we do hope to um, line up some regional gatherings uh, I, I still call them gatherings um <laughs> what a throwback <laughs> <laughs> when they were nationals they were the gatherings yes. um, I promise we're not like people of the corn <laughs> <laughs> maybe a little bit yeah um, so some like regional uh, specialties and events um, and there are several members who want to like host regional events which will be great we're going to be working with them to do that we just had a big Bracco bash in Michigan oh, cool. um, which and uh, Michael Herndon was kind of the primary organizer there okay. and they had several dogs show up they did some um a little bit of hunt testing uh had a, a fun match it looked like a great time I think everybody had a lot of fun cool and like that yeah and something you know I did when I after I saw my first Bracco I think 2002 um I attended a national first. I wanted to kind of see, go, go to a place where I could see the largest majority at one time. And, um, so I can't push that enough of if, if, if you're interested in the breed, not only do the research, but attend the national you're, there's going to, yeah, there's going to be confirmation there, but there's also going to be field stuff. There's educational seminars. You can talk to breeders, get your hands on their dogs. Um, can you, can you pitch a little bit about that national next year for 2023? It's going to be the first national since the breed's been recognized. So it, it's probably going to be a little different from what our other ones have been. Yes. Um, and so for that, um, I think I'm very excited for it. Um, we're again, going to have a show and, and some hunt testing, hopefully get uh, some fun events in there as well, some fun hunt days, um, some Italian style judging both for show and field. Um, but I, it, hopefully it's it's gonna be as big as we're <laughs> building it up to be obviously the first like AKC sanctioned nationals. Um, but I'm excited for it. I'm hoping trying to get time off work. <laughs> <laughs> so but, what, um, are, what are dates and location? Yep. And so our next nationals um, will be in Brainerd, Nebraska, um, April 10th to April 14th, uh, 2023. So uh, a little less than a year away. Um, and it's going to be at a, a hunt club there. And we have quite a few fun things planned. We'll obviously have like our shows and our, our hunt testing, um, the first AKC sanctioned nationals, um, but also try to have like some fun days, have fun um, some European style shows and, uh, you know, looking at our Italian work standard as well, um, at nationals. And it's being held at a sporting club. So I'm assuming there's going to be the ability to shoot some sporting clays there as well. I hope so. I think, um, I don't know if they've finalized a kind of the fun events with nationals yet. Um, okay. we did that, uh, at our last nationals, and in 2021 and that was amazing that was it was great fun so fun it was so um, and so I hope fun we're able to do that again I think that was a request <laughs> from several people um but yeah even if it's not um like a club organized shoot I, I certainly think that'll be available for everyone which um honestly that was one of my favorite part uh, parts of nationals last year it was, it was great <laughs> mine too mine too 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Amanda. I really appreciate you coming on. If you could give us some information on how we can connect with you, the handles on social media, find out more about the breed, where can we go? What can we do? Yep. And so um, if you wanted to contact me directly, um, my email is Pointer. B-R-A-C-C-O-P-O-I-N-T-E-R at AOL.com. I'm still the dinosaur that uses AOL. Um, (laughs) And um, we're on Instagram and uh, Facebook. I don't have the direct Instagram handle. I'm not on Instagram. Um, Gary Lewis uh, is our vice president. He's great to reach out to. He's got all of the social media down. Um, I can put the handles in the show notes so people can just click right on it. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm the person with the AOL email address, so we all know where I am. <laughs> logically, I'm like 1999. <laughs> um, you know, you've got mail. Um, <laughs> so, I you can certainly email me um, anytime with any questions. Um, like I said, the um, Bracco Italiano Club of America Facebook group is pretty active, um, and there are members updates and stuff available there as well as just like some standard brags and fun pictures and um you know it's certainly a a good way to kind of virtually meet people in the breed um and then we try to keep updated on on instagram as well again i don't have instagram but um yeah yeah (laughs) gary lewis is our 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 master there perfect and um if you join the club you get there's a great newsletter that comes out every couple of um, months. And I love the education piece that you guys are adding into things right now. So really looking forward to those. And those will all be recorded for those of us that can't make it tomorrow night. Yep. And, okay. um, with that, our plan is to have like the judges education and the confirmation and the working standard and all of those recorded and then available online. Um, we may have to, um, either adjust like our current website, um, like requirements versus like putting them on YouTube or something like that. But we're working to find the best way um, to make them available to everyone. Um, there end up being massive documents, which is tricky sometimes, but um, mm-hmm. we're working on getting that available as well as a list of um, hunting mentors for people that want um, kind of some assistance um, or even just a, someone to bounce ideas off of, or if people are very new to the breed and, and are just getting started um, finding someone in their area that can help them um, get their dog started with hunt tests. Do you hear the cat? You now? should go feed your cat. <laughs> She's. <laughs> yep. Yep. And um, so the, the mentors are listed on the, or will be listed shortly on the website. Um, and then we will also have like some show and handling mentors and confirmation mentors as well. Um, and that way you can find someone local to you or, you know, even just reaching out virtually via email or, or phone call um, to, com- you know, connect with the other people in the breed. Um, okay. I am cool. happy to, to take emails from anybody if you have any questions um, or if you're looking to get started with the breed and um, the website for the club um, is a good place to start. You can have the breeder listing, but also breed information on um, events and places where you can go to meet the dogs. Um, I think meeting them in person is really important um, prior to making the commitment of owning one um, because again, they're not like your other gun dogs they're kind of a a breed of their own um and so meeting them in person and learning some of their quirks ahead of time is always smart yep 
Absolutely. Well, thank you so very much. Thank you, Courtney. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Bird Dog Babe podcast. Now you have two great educational opportunities to tune into tonight, July 6th. The Bracco Italiano Standard Review Zoom Meeting and our Beyond the Podcast webinar on the NAVD Utility Test, which you can join on patreon.com forward slash the bird dog babe. Be sure to check out the sponsors of this podcast, Purina Pro Plan, Boss Shot Shells, Onyx Hunt, and our partner, Siren Shotguns and Dakota 283. And don't forget to support the conservation organizations of the birds that you chase after and the public lands in which you hunt. <laughs>